listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning with the double L team, Lyland. Lawson. Lawson. How are you this morning? I'm great. You're great. I'm so good. Lawson the great. I'm living my best life. I'm happy. I, I set out kind of late last night, but other than that, like, things are going well. Why are you great this morning? Ah. Oh. One reason and one reason alone. Vegan lasagna. I thought you were going to say Jesus. Amen. (laughs) That's what I meant to say. (laughs) No, uh, uh, of course, yes, we get life and breath and hope and peace from Christ. But I ate vegan lasagna last night and it was amazing. Um, but was it vegan lasagna made from two minute noodles? No, it was like legit vegan lasagna with like vegan mince and oh, people make it from two minute noodles. Yes. Oh, yeah, I showed you that. Ah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, I showed Lyle a picture, like, a couple of days ago of someone making vegan lasagna from, like... Two-minute noodles. Two-minute noodles, which is... No, this was Can't actual vegan lasagna. the purpose lasagna. of l- vegan lasagna, doesn't Just it? Just eat two-minute noodles. <laughs> this wasn't two-minute noodles. This was vegan this is the lasagna that was thing. really, really, really good. Um, except for the part where my dad, for some reason, has started calling lasagna lasagna. Which is just, like, firstly, you never used to say it like that, and secondly, isn't correct in any language. Okay, so you're going to call your dad out on radio 100%. I don't care, man. (laughs) Because I need him to stop. I was probably listening in this morning. I wanted to pull my hair out hearing him say lasagna. I'm like, no one has ever said that except you. (laughs) Yes, yeah, so bit of bit of bit of tension, bit of tension in my family at the moment. Uh, heavy you stuff, you know. We need to work through. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. So, Lyle. Yes. Mm, this is kind of a sketchy question because I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want you to elaborate. But the question is, Lyle, are there any memories in your brain that you're like, oh man, I wish I could just forget this. Uh, if I stopped and thought about it, I'm sure I could come up with some. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some. There's one thing, and uh, you know, for me, this morning is my dad saying lasagna instead of lasagna. No, but uh, <laughs> I was reading this. Sto- I was reading this morning about how research. This is this is actually interesting because I read this and I was like, hmm, that's. At first, I was like, oh, that's cool, and then I was like, uh, researchers are you know just currently. Uh, Getting into, you know, uh, studying how we currently do therapy in association to traumatic events. Okay. So, you know, when it comes to traumatic events, at the moment, the biggest kind of tool that they use is what's called exposure therapy, where they say, you know, sit a person down um, and they try to get them to relive a memory by... uh, They give an example here. For example, a military veteran who's been wounded by an explosive device may be asked to re-experience trauma cues like lights and sounds of the the explosion will kind of trigger the memory. They'll go through it again and then they just sit there with the therapist and talk it out. And by getting familiar with the memory, it kind of takes the mystique away from it and then, you know, they can begin to heal um, in this, yeah, psychotherapy. But uh, I was reading here um, a quote from Stephen Merrin, who is a doctor at the a&M University in Texas, and he said, the one major challenge is when you do, uh, you know, this type of 
therapy and procedures, it doesn't erase the original traumatic memory. And it's, you know, it's always there and it can bubble back up. And this can be a problem for people is that they can relapse into their, their struggles because, you know, our memories and our experiences and things that we've been through, particularly with like PTSD and all that, this, this stuff can affect us for the rest of our life. So what they're trying to do is, is get these memories and, and to work through them so that people can, can come out of the other side and be better and be healed. But in this research, what they've been trying to do is that, um, with these, they, they bring these cues in and they don't explain how they do this exactly, but essentially they use other artificial cues to disrupt the memory while it's happening. Now, I thought this was interesting because I was like, okay, so what you're doing with someone is you're trying to disrupt their memory to essentially then break the memory down and get rid of it. And I was like, man, this sounds a lot like brainwashing. I was like, yeah, this sounds a lot like brainwashing and, you know, just trying to get rid of people's memories. Is that necessarily a good thing? You know, uh, I think that there are a lot of people who use the saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And if that is true, then yeah, things that we go through when we work through them and can move on, like to have those memories, to have those experiences can, can usually actually be a positive thing. But this is just straight up like, okay, Let's try and just remove memories from people, and, like artificially, and then they'll live a better life because of it. I don't know. What do you think, Lyle? Do you think this is a positive thing to just go like, all right, our solution to traumatic events is just to remove them? I think that the solution to traumatic events is to find Jesus Christ. I think mm. that we live in a world that is incredibly broken, mm-hmm. and there are incredibly painful things that happen to every single one of us, and that you can't just you know use your zappy tool to get rid of bad memories and, uh, you know, because that doesn't exist. We don't have a zappy tool, you know, mm-hmm. um, to, to be able to do that. You know, we, we talk about, you know, talking it through and, and all this kind of thing. And there are definitely things that are going to help people deal with traumatic memories. Mm. But I think the key word there is help. Yes. I don't think we're ever going to cure mm. outside of Jesus Christ. Mm. Uh, I wanna... this is, this is, sorry, if I, if oh, I could yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Just, just keep elaborating here for a moment. When you talk to um, David Haupt about this, who has tremendous experience mm. in it, mm-hmm. he'll point out that the research over and over and over and over again has found that most of these therapies do not work without incorporating the spiritual aspect. Yes, yes. And it's only do you get uh, success when you incorporate the spiritual aspect. Mm, that's, like, fantastic point. But I think, like, where my mind goes is, like, Man, is this even like removing it from therapy? I'm like, this just sounds like brainwashing. Like, is this? It does I, sound a bit that way, doesn't it? I'm like, I don't is really this want even to... a positive thing. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be like, uh, okay, I want you to go in and do that zappy thing on my brain. Yeah, right. It's just, just not a great idea. Because even in the spiritual th- context, I think our ability, particularly like. Me and you as Christians, uh, we can sit here and look at events in our lives and see how God has brought us through them and healed us uh, because of it. And, you know, I, I, I'm i thankful that I went through those experiences now and that I can reflect on them in a Christian way and that I can use them as a testimony to how God can work in my life um, and how he can heal me from those struggles. It's just interesting that, yeah, in the scientific medical world that, you know, the... 
the secular scientific medical world, they're trying to just remove memory. So I guess we'll see what happens if they get incorporated in any professional capacity. Yeah, I mean, the Bible talks about the refining process that we go through as human beings. Mm. And so your passages like, you know, Malachi chapter 3, who, who may abide, abide the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That's the King James Version. But when you read that passage there, what you find is that God turns our defeats into a refining process mm. that if we go through them with Jesus Christ, we can come out a better person as a result of it. Now, one day God will get rid of sin and pain and suffering altogether. That is for the future. For now, God's purpose is to get us through what it is that we are actually dealing with, um, with the you know the, the the challenges that we have. And I think forgetting them is not the not the solution. Mm. Building off them and learning from them is the solution. And when you talk about a refiner's fire, you know. That's how you refine gold. That's how you refine silver. You get it hot and all of the waste, you know, floats away and the pure metal is left. And that involves fire. And so we're going to go through hard experience. We're going to go through fire here in this world. And if we do that with Jesus Christ, he will use those experiences to make us into a better person. And that's how we need to look at these kind of experiences, even when they are horrific. We need Mm. to look from them from the perspective of how can I grow from this? Yes. Mm. Well, yeah, that's a, like that principle is brought up in the Bible again and again and again. I think in Romans, all things work together for good. I think in Hebrews, uh, he who is without reproof isn't a son of God. Like, just in fact, yeah, it's the the symbol of a Christian, of a follower of God, um, in the world that we live in. That you go through hard experiences um, and come out the side of come out of them on the other side with Jesus, not because God wants you to go through hard experiences, um, but rather because that's just the nature of the world we live in. That's right. We are caught in the crossfire of a you know a great controversy that is raging across the universe. Mm. And uh, there is you know only so much that God can do without manipulating human will. Yeah, without impeding free will. Mm. Without impeding free will and God will never do that. Amen. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right, Lyle, what's happening around the world? Hectic, heavy news. Okay, so uh, breaking news is that um, Derek Chauvin um, has been convicted of second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. In other words, they took the book and threw it at him. (sighs) Topped everything. I I think if if he wasn't hit with the book, like... America would be in flames. Yeah, 100%. Yes. If he had been protected, like... Which is a really... It's it's a... uh, is it possible? Is it even possible to have a fair trial when you've got that much societal pressure? I mean, you've got Minneapolis in virtual lockdown with the National Guard rolled out on the streets and, mm. you know, they're ready for anything. If this didn't happen, mm. very, very difficult situation. I don't know that you can, you know, and I'm not, I'm, I, I can't judge either way. I wasn't part of the trial, haven't followed the trial. Mm. Um, you know, I'm passing no judgment whatsoever at all. He has been found guilty, and so we're going to say that he is guilty based mm. on that. Um, there will no doubt be an appeals process. I don't know. But if nothing else, hopefully it'll alleviate some violence and alleviates and stops a lot of other people from being killed. Yeah. I feel like, you know, for a lot of people, like, obviously, yeah, 
um, Derek Chauvin, he's the 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 police officer who the thing he's being convicted was for responsible is murdering for the death of uh, George, George Floyd. Floyd. Yes, and I think that you know we're we, we're seeing like justice here in the eyes of the people. Like, okay, um, police officers are being brought to task when they do the wrong thing. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, does this now, like, now that police officers have seen this, now that the people have seen this, like, hopefully, like, from the police officer's perspective, it's like, okay. It's, stop being bad from the people's perspective. It's like justice will happen. So we don't need to riot in the streets anymore. Like you would hope that peace would come from this. I doubt it. But I guess we'll just have to see. Yeah. I kind of doubt it. America's Mm. a bit of a boiling pot at the moment, but anyway, we'll see what happens. So that's the, that's the breaking news that is out there right Mm. now. Okay. So another news we did say that we would, uh, okay. So we talked about the COVID recession and with the beginning of the COVID recession, it hit women the hardest as far as jobs, the jobs market went. And so we had, um, at the, at the, in the early days, it reached a point where you had 47,420 women who were out of jobs um, and 44,870 uh, men who were actually better off as far as jobs went. And so that created a, a jobs gap um of sorry no that's where we are now in mm. let me put that the other way around because that now creates a jobs gap in favor of women by nearly 100,000 but at the beginning it was in favor of men by nearly 70,000 mm. so what's interesting this is an interesting thing so uh, at the beginning of the covid recession you had lots and lots of women who were out of work much more women who were out of work than what men were and now it's the other way around, and so that raises a whole bunch of questions in my mind is why is that the case? I don't have the answers. Are women just more adaptable than men and have gone, yeah, you know what, I can't work in the hospitality field anymore or you know these kinds of areas that have been hit the hardest and they're more willing to go out and try something different? Mm. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. That's interesting. Nearly a hundred thousand in favour of women right now, as far as the uh, the jobs market goes. Have women just adapted faster? This is a, an Australian. This statistic. is an Australian stat. Yeah. Okay. Oh, anyway. that's tough. I don't know, man. Uh, me either. Me either. <laughs> uh, another thing coming out of uh, out of COVID has been a slump in the price of apartments. So real estate Wait, is going through the roof. A slump. Apartments. Okay. So real estate is going through the roof, right? Yeah, we just bought a house. Yes. And it was expensive. <laughs> so I mean, my, you would have paid through the nose for my it, I'm dad, sure. <laughs> Dad's like last year, he's like, I'm just gonna wait for the market to crash. Yeah. And nah. then it didn't crash. You lost a hundred grand right there. Yeah. Um and I know, you know, there was a whole bunch of people who are in exactly the same exactly the same boat. Mm. I've got friends who moved um with work over the Christmas break and sold their house were unable to buy a house straight away and have been mm. looking to buy a house and in the couple of months <laughs> lost like 50 grand because the market went up that fast. Heavy. So, yeah, heavy stuff. Mm. But apartments have slumped. Okay. Why is that? Okay, so two things that are driving apartments is one is the exodus from the cities mm. has hit the apartments more than people living in the suburbs. Okay, okay. Uh, now, the exodus from the city has come about as a result of a whole bunch of people uh, because of COVID working from home. Mm. And it's like, well, I'm working from home. Uh, I can live anywhere. So why would I live in an apartment when I can live on acreage in, say, the Hunter Valley? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Makes perfect sense. 
And, of course, some of these apartment blocks have been perceived as becoming COVID towers. <laughs> it's like, who wants to live in a COVID tower? You know, the whole tower gets locked down. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, that's been an interesting move. Um, and it's really been fueled by the push to the bush that we're seeing in Australia, which I think is just a fantastic thing. Human beings were never intended to live in vertical human filing cabinets. Oh, we were intended to live in a garden. Dude, so true. So yesterday, again, moved into my new house, yes. walked down the back you for the got first bush, time. Like bush forever bush. behind you. Just, I've got like, so we live on like uh, two acres. I think it's like a little over two acres. It's like a very narrow block and it kind of got a, you're, like the house is up on the road and then it goes down the hill into the bush and then it backs on to And the bush just basically goes acres, forever. Hundreds and hundreds of acres of reserve. Yes. And so, yeah. it just, you've got a back gate that goes into it. It goes a back gate that goes into And a track. Dude, I went through the back gate, kept walking, and found the most epic motorbike track that was just already existing there. Lyle, See, like, this, this is, is this the is best how human beings. This is how human beings were intended by God to live. <laughs> we were placed in the bush. We were placed in the garden. Dude, so good. Oh, let's go. All right. So uh, I did say I'd do a COVID update. Yes. Um, and this one's coming out of India. They're climbing towards 2,000 deaths per day at the moment. They're, they're climbing. Climbing towards that. Yeah, they're having another wave, like I think their third or fourth wave. I can't remember how many waves have gone mm. through India now. Um, they're up around 260,000 infections per day. And this is reported. So you're dealing with India, right? So you understand that a lot of people live a village lifestyle in India. So the vast majority are not being reported. 260,000 infections day. per day. They're able to, what boggles my mind is they're able to actually calculate that. Um, reported cases, 15.32 million. Um, just in India. Just in India, 180,000 reported deaths. Um, they have been working on the vaccination over there, of course, and they've got 108 million people vaccinated, which is like four, over four times the population of Australia. Um, so that's you know a big effort to vaccinate. But mm-hmm. when you think about it, that's actually a really drop, small drop in the bucket mm. um, because they've got 1.3 billion people to get through um, as their estimated population. So yeah, that's what's happening. That's, that's what's happening over there in India right now. Um, I did say we would talk about the Uyghurs in China because there's a new report that has just emerged, um, and this is from Human Rights Watch, 53-page report. And it details how that the concentration camps created by the Chinese government in China to imprison the Uyghur people um, have been designed and publicly stated, this is the public stated purpose, back in 2017, break their lineage, break their roots, break their connections, break their origins. Mm. Rough stuff. And, you know, the question sort of that comes up in our mind is, okay, what do we do about this? You know, if we put sanctions on China, can we survive without China? What happens to the Australian economy if we cut China off? Mm. You know, you have Australians up in arms because we couldn't get all of our cheap stuff anymore, and yet over a million people are suffering there right now, and we are dithering about it. You know, I remember some years ago when Donald Trump worked so hard to get one pastor released in Turkey mm. because he was a Christian pastor. What about a million Muslims imprisoned for their faith in China. What are we prepared to do about that? You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay. And I have a bragging rights just saying. Oh, okay. Clap. 
Yeah, I'm clapping. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so last week we had a major scandal that was alleged in the press mm-hmm. uh, in relationship to the Orthodox Church and St. Basil's Aged Care Facility. Uh, now, of course, we had 45 residents there who tragically died from COVID, mm. but it was alleged that the government had you know, poured millions of dollars in funding into the facility and then it was implied in the media that the money was pretty much just passed across to the Orthodox Church. Now, we have no way of verifying the allegations and neither have the major media outlets, I should say, but you know, government funding of religious schools and aged care facilities is not uncommon in Australia, and so I thought it would be good to find out you know, how this system works. So joining me on the phone this morning is David Knight. David is the CEO of Adventist Senior Living. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. David, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Adventist Senior Living and the organisation that you're a part of? Um, how big is it, and what are you actually involved in? Mm, yeah, so we provide a range of services to um, older Australians. Uh, we uh, we do that from five retirement villages, and they're sort of based both in Lake Macquarie and up on the north coast in Tweed Heads area. And uh, we also provide um, home care services to uh, nearly 200 uh, people across both those two areas. And then we have uh, a higher level of care in our three residential aged care facilities, which uh, again based at Orsonville by one, and we have two of those at uh, Lake Macquarie. So, yeah, about eleven hundred people we look after every day. Yeah, so that's a uh, pretty significant um, organisation that you are mm. in charge of, uh, and I would imagine it would have a significant budget. Um, do you get government funding? Does uh, Adventist yeah. even get government yeah. funding? Look, we absolutely do. Um, we receive government funding for our residential aged care facilities and also for our home care services. Uh, and this funding is uh, is based on uh, comprehensive care assessments that we do against government set criteria. Okay, so why does the government fund private faith-based companies um, mm. such as, um, you know, aged care facilities and so forth? Yeah, yeah. Well, great question. I guess just to give you a bit of a, a scope or understanding of the size of the aged care sector in Australia, so the government spends currently something like $21 billion a year on aged care. A big chunk of that is spent in residential aged care, and to provide residential aged care, you have to be an approved provider, and uh, there's about 920 of those across the country. Same, uh, same applies to home care, and there's um, uh, uh, there's nearly 900 of those as well across the, across the country. So in terms of size, about 220,000 residential aged care beds and over 170,000 home care clients. Roughly 60% of this um, uh, this service is provided by the not-for-profit and uh, church and charitable sector. So if government wasn't to fund it, they would have to find someone else to provide those services. So uh, it's a, the not-for-profit and uh, church and charitable sector is a key uh, provider of services to uh, to older Australians, for sure. So if uh, if the if the not for profit and if if the uh, you know faith based organisations pulled out, mm. then that would be a massive burden on government that they'd have yeah. to pick up. So it becomes kind of a win win. We help you out, and uh, yeah. you take the burden yeah. off us. Kind of uh, a situation yeah. that is happening yeah. there. And I think as Australians, yeah. most of us we're, we're pretty familiar with that kind of thing. With um, you know happens with education and everything. Um, and everything mm. else. Okay, so um, yeah. 
Now, with government funding, how does it actually work? Is this when you get government funding? Is it just uh, here's a here's a cash splash? Go spend it however you want, or do you apply for funding for specific projects? Like we want to build something, or we want to create some infrastructure? Can we have some funding for that? How does that actually work? Yeah, there's probably two main streams of funding. There's the operational funding required to uh, provide uh, care and services to uh, uh, to residents and clients, uh, and that's based on very detailed um, uh, clinical assessment processes, uh, and they're submitted through um, uh, through the Medicare system, and then we receive payment based on the criteria set by government to provide that level of care for that particular resident. That's quite a detailed process. Um, there are also the opportunity for uh, to apply for capital grants. Uh, these are typically those are targeted at uh, the smaller and the rural and regional remote operators. Um, for obvious reasons, it's a it's a more challenging space to um, to provide those services in. But again, they um, they will always come with um, with conditions attached to them, and uh, and the uh, the federal government is very good at making sure that those conditions are, are fully complied with. So. Um, not across any um, any cash flashes for uh, for the sector as such. Every now and then we do get um, some boosting. So we've received some funding boosting over the last uh, 12 months or so specifically to deal with COVID-19 and the added um, costs that, that the sector is um, incurring for things like managing visitation and uh, setting up systems to screen residents and screen, um, uh, screen visitors and those sorts of things. But again, that funding is tied to a specific outcome. Okay, so you mentioned the um, that they, you know the government funding comes with conditions attached yeah. to it. What kind of conditions? Yeah. What kind of strings come attached with uh, government funding? Yeah, well, usually it's it's, uh, it's an evidence base. So, for example, if we go back to the um, to the, the clinical uh, care of residents, uh, we have to provide evidence that um, the care level that we have assessed that that particular resident needs. Is actually being provided, and that is, um, and that's validated uh, reasonably regularly by uh, by the department. And the same with we have uh, we have unannounced uh, spot visits uh, from the regulator, and we have three yearly uh, unannounced uh, full accreditation orders again by the uh, by the regulator. That's primarily driven uh, or looking at the provision of care and the uh, and the governance of the organisation. Um, we're also subject to annual financial uh, audits as well, uh, and that information is also passed to uh, to the regulator and to the charity regulator as well. So it seems the government keeps a pretty close eye on the money that they are spending on faith-based organisations then? Mm, yeah, look, I think not just faith-based, but the whole sector is... Um, is uh, uh, you know, when, the, when government is spending you know, in excess of $20 billion, then it's reasonable... To expect that there's um, there's some oversight of that uh, that expenditure. Okay, so this story coming out of St Basil's, and this is what's alleged in the media, and you know we've got no way of verifying it, but mm-hmm. the allegation is that um, you know the, the, the St Basil's uh, situation was that they mm-hmm. were um, paying rent to the Orthodox Church at double the market rate, and therefore using millions of government dollars. Uh, just using St Basil as a way of of channeling 
those millions of dollars into the Orthodox Church. Is that is is does that sound like reality? I mean, we we can't verify that. And do we have a similar system to that in Adventist aged care, where you can just sort of you know take government money and 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 charge exorbitant rents and just run it straight through to the church that way? Yeah, so look, I get to the first question in relation to the Orthodox Church. Genuinely not in a position to comment on yeah, that. Yeah, no, I we think, understand um, that. Um, you know, the information that's out there is, is not is not clear. Um, but uh, uh, in terms of Adventist senior living, uh, we're a, we're an entity in our own right. Uh, we don't we don't provide funding to the church. Uh, and, but I, I would also say that neither do we receive funding from the church, and that that's that's reasonable from my perspective. Uh, so. Um, uh, you know, we have to maintain our own assets. We have to, uh, and that's really what the, the rental charge to a landlord would be for. Uh, but we uh, we manage that ourselves in the family. So there's no there's no uh, money changing hands between entities. Uh, it all remains within the organisation to, uh, and is reinvested uh, in the organisation to uh, to continue to provide services to um, uh, to old Australians. And I guess that answers my next big question because, you know, any organisation mm-hmm. is supposed to make profit. It's, it's, that's entirely yeah. you know, reasonable that, it, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't, we're not in the purpose of making a loss and, and what do those profits go for? Yeah. And what you're indicating is that they would uh, be turned back into the organisation for the growth of the organisation. Yeah, so growth and maintenance of the, of, of the organisation, for sure. Yeah, we're very fortunate in that regard. We're not, we're not providing... Um, uh, you know, dividends to stockholders and those sorts of things. Everything we everything we generate in terms of surpluses stays within the organisation, which is which is fantastic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and it sort of it, it definitely saves some of these difficult questions being asked that uh, are asked in uh, other areas, uh, such yeah. as has been in the yeah. media. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah. Now. Um, Coming to the situation of COVID, of course, um, we had this tragedy down there at St. Basil's, um, a major outbreak there. Have any of our facilities been affected by um, outbreaks of COVID? Yeah, so we've had no uh, no outbreaks uh, of COVID in our uh, facilities, in our residential aged care facilities. Uh, we have had um, uh, two in uh, two of our retirement villages. This is way back at the at the start of the whole uh, pandemic, and uh, um, both of those uh, both of those people uh, recovered, uh, fully recovered, and uh, uh, and so we've been really blessed in that regard. Very fortunate to operate in the in the regional areas where we do, where the you know the the, the uh, pandemic hasn't been quite as prevalent, but we've certainly worked very hard also at. Uh, um, you know, managing our visitation, being very diligent with our infection control, and uh, and making sure that where we can, we get our staff vaccinated, staff and residents vaccinated. Yeah, and uh, only and only two individuals infected. I think that's a, that's a great record. Yeah, there. Um, very praise God for that. Very yes. in that regard. Yes. yes. Now, uh, the vaccination, you know, we hear about the vaccination, of course. Um, I'm not eligible mm. for it, but uh, I, I imagine that that would be something that would be progressing within aged care. Um, yeah, how is that yeah. whole whole situation proceeding with uh, vaccinations? Yeah, look, you know, it's getting a lot of uh, it's getting a lot of media attention, particularly at a national level. From our perspective, it's going very well. Um, we're not in a position to comment on Numbers, uh, but from our perspective, our facility also builds um, uh, the residents that have chosen to be vaccinated have been uh, fully vaccinated, 
and uh, and we're 50% of the way through that process uh, at uh, at Avondale with the final uh, round of vaccinations due uh, week up the next, I think. So there's a three-week gap between uh, the first and the second uh, vaccination and uh, and the people down here and at Austinville uh, in the 1A category uh, receiving the Pfizer vaccination. Right, the Pfizer. Yeah, so that was one of the other questions I was going to ask was uh, which one is it? And because uh, there's been a, a few question yeah. marks that popped up over AstraZeneca and so forth, but we've been using yeah. the Pfizer one. Yeah. Um, we are. And so residents in the 1A category will receive the Pfizer, that's right. Yep. And with the, um, you mentioned those who choose to have it, so obviously this is something that is optional. Is it optional for staff as well? It is at the moment, yeah. And uh, we're not seeing that change at this particular point in time. In the, uh, when the pandemic started last year, uh, flu vaccines were made mandatory for, uh, for all staff, uh, provided there were no uh, you know, medical uh, contraindications there. Uh, but at this stage, government has not made it mandatory for, uh, for staff. Mm, mm. Okay, and uh, yeah, what percentage of people are going to have uh, need to be vaccinated to achieve uh, herd immunity? Yeah, look, that's a, that's a great question, isn't it? I think um, uh, look, they've got some they've got some great data in terms of other you know other um, uh, diseases. Uh, you know, for example, herd immunity for measles, you need about ninety five percent of the population to be vaccinated. Uh, and the thinking is the remaining five percent will be uh, protected by the fact that measles, you know, won't be spread by those who are already vaccinated. Polio, it's about eighty percent. The reality with COVID nineteen is we just don't know. Sure. Um, so it's it's really, uh, and I think probably reasonable. It's just so early in the in the process at this stage that we just don't know. David Knight, thank you so much for being willing to come on and talk about uh, these issues that are in the media right now. We uh, we appreciate that very much, and uh, all yeah, the best pleasure. with um, Adventist Aged Care. Thanks very much, Ralph. Catch you later. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at one eight hundred Faith FM.